0: Uh, And today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. And this should look familiar because I think we've done this fairly recently. Um, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and his father and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, good morning. It is good to be back in Madison, Wisconsin my new home away from home. I had a a great time being back in New York City for a little while, uh, being able to spend some quality time uh, with my wife, Jen, and also seeing my first son graduate from college officially. And in fact, uh, yesterday, he was flown out uh, to his first professional job post-graduation using his Uh, electrical engineering degree and this morning he is boarding a Norwegian cruise line as an engineering officer encircling the islands of Hawaii for the next four months. (laughs) It could be a worse start to your career but I couldn't imagine much worse. That's where he is. I'm a proud dad. Somebody else gets to start paying their own way in this life. That's a good thing. But it's good to be back here. Uh, I also want to say just thank you if you had any part whatsoever in collaborating to get my new apartment organized and situated and all the furnishings gathered together and in place. Uh, If you were a part of that, wow, you did an amazing job. Thank you. Uh, it was amazing to come to a place. It, it felt like home as soon as I walked in the door. So uh, it is, it is nice uh, to have that established. And uh, just to give you a heads up, um, uh, as much as an introvert as I am, I, I I do like parties and I like hosting parties. And I and and honestly, I don't know how it's going to work. But for like the last well, since we lived in New York, my wife and I have always hosted a Christmas party in our apartment in Sunnyside, and it's been, it has been—it was open to the whole Sunnyside neighborhood, and it was open to our church, um, and it was just kind of an open house that we did like for six hours on a Saturday during the holiday, during Christmas, December time, and um, I won't be able to be with Jen to do that. I don't know what's going to happen in New York, but I want to do that here, and it's a very small apartment, but I think we can pull it off, so uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, I, I'm actually excited about being able to host. And 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 host you all. We're a little. I know I'm a little out of the way. I'm out out west. I'm not close by, um, but anyway, more more on that as we get closer to the holidays. But all I to say, I am extremely uh, fortunate and thankful and grateful for how uh, the effort you put into making that feel like a home. Here we are. Uh, we are continuing our sermon series, uh, looking at the book of Genesis that we have entitled the origin of species, and everything else. And we have seen that God found it important to communicate and to express to his people Israel as they're about to enter the land that he had promised, their history. And not just going back to their days of slavery in Egypt, but all the way back to the beginning of all things. And that's what we have seen in the first two chapters of Genesis. And we've also said it's important that we keep in mind that, as in fact, as we're reading any book of the Bible, we recognize that, yes, of course, it's written for us, but it's not written; it was not written to us. And so the degree that we cooperate, do our best to cooperate uh, with the author and his original context, uh, the better we will be served in hearing and applying God's word to us today. So one last thing before I dig into the text, I just want to make an observation about the process thus far. So far, we have been dealing with passages and accounts in the Bible. There aren't many of them, but are pre-fall, <laughs> pre-the existence and entrance of evil and sin into God's good created cosmos. Prior to chapter 3, which is on the horizon, <laughs> we're almost there, There's no sin or evil or brokenness in the world. And I think that's hard for us to imagine, frankly. But we've been intentionally taking our time looking at the way things were created from the very beginning to function and to properly work, both considering how humanity was going to both dwell intimately with our creator on this earth, but also how, as God's image bearers, we were given the task, the original commission, to benevolently and justly reign over all of God's good creation. And all done before sin entered the world. In other words... Even though we live on this side of Genesis 3, where the fall is recorded in the Bible, we've been looking at and seeing the way things were supposed to be. That means there has been less said about God's implementation of his redemption plan that culminates with Jesus and his life and his work and his death and resurrection. But that has been intentional. You see, I think for many Christians, there's rarely even little conscious attention to and recognition of the fact that the Bible doesn't start with Genesis 3. So much of what we are taught is that the Bible is only concerned about dealing with the sin issue that has infected this world and has infected our hearts, now don't get me wrong, <laughs> my, several of my seminary professors gave us this line and to use, don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> the sin issue is a big deal. In fact, it's a hell of a big deal. <laughs> But the whole point of God dealing with the sin issue is to get his original plan, seen here in Genesis 1 and 2, back on track. And that's exactly where the larger story is going, as we read in Revelation. And as you studied Revelation, you see there, towards the end, God's new humanity... Properly reigning on this earth with his son, Jesus Christ, who is the image bearer of God par excellence and who brings Jerusalem. That is God's true resting place back to be reunited fully on earth with his humanity. And so by the end of Revelation, the sin issue gets dealt with once and for all. And God and humanity can once again walk and dwell together fully and wholly. That's where the story started. That's where it's going. That's the big picture. And so that's why I think it is actually a helpful thing to enjoy some time moving through these first couple of chapters in Genesis at the slower pace that we have. I think spending time lingering here in Genesis 1 and 2 allows us the opportunity to be reminded that our experience wasn't always marred by the evil and sin in our hearts and the evil and sin in this world. And hopefully by lingering here for several weeks, something within your very DNA as an image-bearing human being has been further stirred to long for a day when we will know the full reality of what it means to be a human being, and in proper relationship with our creator, with ourselves, with each other, and with this world. And it also serves to affirm that the impulse we might have for things to be the way they are supposed to be is not mere fantasy that it is good and right and appropriate to hold out hope for things to be the way they are supposed to be because we do serve a God of not only good creation, but also a very good recreating redemption. Of course, it's not a guarantee that things will always change, at least not in our timing that we would prefer. But it is an affirmation that the impulse to long for such things and to hope for genuine change is not without merit or in vain. It's not simply pie in the sky. Now, lastly, before we pray, I need to warn you that unfortunately, we're going to need one more week on this passage. (laughs) Sorry. I thought I could do it in two originally. Actually, I thought I could do it in one. That was, that was pie in the sky. Then I thought I could do it in two, but it can't be. We need one more. So I'm, I'm going to beg your just endurance and patience just a little longer before we get to Genesis 3. But I also finally want to warn you and ask for your forgiveness ahead of time that this particular sermon might feel a little bit more like a Bible study than a sermon every sermon has a certain level of a teaching component in it, right? Every sermon. This one's going to have just a little bit more than, than usual. But I'm going to ask for your patience and endurance with me. There will be some application, but next week we will really get to greater application. All right? So if you'll make that agreement with me, here we go. Uh, let's pray one more time as we dive in. Okay. And I recognize it was a long introduction, so just bear with me. Heavenly Father, we do ask that in the moments we have in front of us that you would meet with us as we engage this word that was written literally thousands of years ago. But we recognize that because it is your scripture, it is inspired, and even now your Holy Spirit is working in it and through it. And so as I speak... Ultimately, it is you we need to hear from. So would you use my words? Would you speak through me, around me, whatever is necessary, that we might know that we have truly met with the living God, whose word is also a living, powerful sword. It is true today for us. Help us to see how you mean it for our good. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Okay, so uh, two weeks ago, when I was here last, we were focusing in, we left off focusing in on verse 18. And we began to address the fact that God was making his very first maladdiction on his creation. To that point, again and again, we saw God looking at his creation and seeing and observing, it is good, it is good, it is very good. This is not good. And there in verse 18, God points out, it is not good for humanity to be alone. You see, for image bearers of a God who from eternity past existed and dwelt in community and fellowship within a triune Godhead, for creatures of his to be created in his image necessarily must mean that we are also created for relationship and for community and that's what we see we are built every one of us not just followers of Jesus every human being is built because they're in God's image for relationship to be in community as the theologian Christopher Wright puts it humanity is created in relationship for relationship, and for a task that requires relational cooperation. Not only at the basic biological level, but also at the wider societal level that both men and women have their roles of mutual assistance in the great task of ruling the creation on God's behalf. That's for all human beings. All are built for relationship. But for those who are participants of God's covenant community, to be connected to God and to be in relationship with God necessarily means you are also in connection and relationship with his people. It means you are necessarily invested in the community that he has created, he is covenanted with, and he is actively working in the midst of And therefore, you and I are called to be actively working towards its good and its peace and its shalom, the covenant community. And we also started to look at God's plan to create an azer for the man, a strategic ally. And that's where we left off, if you'll recall. It became clear to Adam that there were no other creature currently available to help fulfill this relationship need that Adam had. And so what does God do? We're back into the narrative. Verse 21, God performs surgery. The text tells us that God causes a sleep, a deep sleep, to fall over Adam. And so Adam's not going to be a party to, or active agent in, or participant in this work. He's going to be passive. God is going to do the work here. Man will get no credit for it. And while he sleeps, verse 22 tells us that God took one of Adam's ribs, and from that rib made woman. Now, here's a little te- there's the teaching part. <laughs> Nowhere else in the Old Testament do we see the word here translated "rib," translated as an anatomical part of the physical body. This is the only place in the whole New Old Testament. Everywhere else, it's used to depict a part of an architectural structure, or it's a carpentry term. It's translated "side, whether a side of a building. Whether the side of the Ark of the Covenant, side of the tabernacle, it's a side. And so what is therefore likely being emphasized by Moses here is not necessarily the specific scientific anatomical part being used, but rather how the woman is created from Adam's side. In fact, one of Adam's two sides. In other words, it's... More poetic than scientific. And in fact, when Adam awakes in verse 22, God brings the woman to the man, and the man breaks out into poetry and (laughs) praise. He gets it. Verse 23, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Adam is beside himself. When he looks at the woman, It is a complex combination, and this is not exact, but it's something like he's looking into a mirror and seeing what is missing in himself, but now present with him. It's him, but it's not him. It's his completion, but it's still a distinct human being in his presence. And furthermore, Adam had to give up something this text is telling us. In order for woman to be created. And yet in doing so, as we now see male and female, man and woman, both created in God's image, there is a unity within the diversity. It is a truly perfect, the woman is truly a perfect complementary, by it being opposite, an equal fit and partner to Adam just as God said he was going to do, when he said, I'm going to make an azer fit for him. And it's why Matthew Henry can describe woman's creation by saying, she was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. Now, take note that the very first words, if we were reading from the beginning again, perhaps you don't, I won't do it again, but surely you will remember the past, that the very first words, therefore, as we read them coming out of Adam's mouth here, the first words of celebration and praise by a human being is not directed to God. They're being directed to another human being. And my friends, that should tell us something right there about the importance of speaking words of encouragement to our fellow human beings. Again, remember, this is pre-fall. There's nothing broken in humanity that necessitates the need for encouraging words of praise and affirmation. It literally, we could say, is in our bones. (laughs) That's how we were made. The first celebration, the first praise, a human to another human being, before sin enters the world, should definitely tell us something profound about how we need to both hear and to offer verbal encouragement to one another on a regular basis, starting with your spouse, including your roommate, (laughs) your fellow classmates, your brothers and sisters in the family. That is core. That is at the core of who we are as human beings. Now, we must, again, I'm going to emphasize, be careful that as we consider now male and female and how female was created, that relationship, what that looks like, we must be careful to cooperate with the text as it's given to us regarding the dynamics of how this relationship is going to work because we are talking about the first marriage here. Yes, Adam and Eve. First wedding takes place right here in the garden. But if we aren't careful in how we interpret and understand this passage, it could lead to misinterpreting other passages in the Bible when it comes to how men and women are to interact and relate to each other in the church. And in fact... Passages such as 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 2, both passages where Paul is drawing on Genesis 1 and 2. He has these passages in his mind as he's speaking to the relationship between men and women in the church. But we must be careful of what Moses is saying here, (laughs) what's given to us and what's not given to us. Because there are actually some, there have actually been several ways that There has been some, in my opinion, bad interpretation and sometimes even agenda driven interpretation, which has had the unfortunate result sometimes, even in the church, of leading to some very patriarchal and misogynistic practices and beliefs. And perhaps you, if you're here this morning, you might have been a part in your past of a church or. Heard Christian teaching in the past that has supported such ideologies. What's happening in Genesis 1 and 2 is what is important. Now, don't get me wrong, the Bible certainly says something about clear and beautiful and creational distinctives between male and female that are important and vital and essential to celebrate. And we will say a little bit more on that in a moment, but we'll say even more next week. But the truth is that there has been a stream of thought that, in my opinion, has gone way further than the Bible and has suggested at least subtly, though often not so subtly, that men are somehow superior to women because of some things that we see here in Genesis 1 and 2. Perhaps you've heard some of these following reasons that, in my opinion, should be addressed. (laughs) And these reasonings actually come from Genesis 1 and 2. These are reasonings that I have heard. I actually had interactions with several uh, women in my life, (laughs) my wife and my sister included, because I wanted to hear from her if I was on track with some of these arguments that I have heard. And I can say they both agreed. (laughs) So first, here's here's one bad bad reasoning, that somehow men are somehow superior to women. (laughs) it's, it's, It's a character I understand, but I think it's important that we clear up any potential misunderstandings of what's happening in one and two. The first idea, and I think this is the most quickly dismissed idea, but there's was, there was a time when people, I think, actually believe this, that men are superior to women just simply because of physical physique generally is bigger and stronger in a man, generally speaking. Brute strength, physiological build. I think that's an easily dis- dismissed <laughs> argument. But in case you needed help from Genesis 1 and 2, certainly there are a lot of other creatures, and animals, whose brute strength, physiology, <laughs> is much greater than the male and female combined. <laughs> we can abandon that one pretty easily. Fair enough. Brute strength does not mean superiority. Secondly, there is an idea that is often raised that says because a woman comes from the man man is therefore superior in other words the contents or the materials that comprise the building blocks of a particular creature that make that creature excuse me make that creature subservient to that which is the source of those materials I think I just completely missed that up the idea is (laughs) the argument goes Something comes from something else. That which it comes from is superior. <laughs> Not sure if you've heard this. That can't be what's happening. <laughs> that can't be the case. Do you remember? Roger just preached this last week. Man was created, if you'll recall, from the dust of the earth. <laughs> In no way does that mean, therefore, that the dust of the earth is superior to Adam, illogical, fair? (laughs) In fact, Adam and Eve, male and female together are called to reign benevolently and rightly over the entire earth, including all of the dust in the earth, (laughs) that can't be the case. The third idea that is often raised is the order or the sequence of creation and how men, man, and woman are created. Now, this is specifically what is argued when one appeals to 1 Timothy 2, because there Paul does certainly alludes to the order of creation in his comments, no doubt. But for whatever Paul is saying there, and that's another passage, and we can talk about that another time. Whatever he is saying there regarding order, he can't be saying that man is superior to woman because he was created first. In other words, if something was created before something else, that which was created first has to be superior. That's the argument. But again, What was the last thing created in all of creation? It was humanity. And that didn't make humanity subservient and inferior to the rest of creation. It made humanity the pinnacle of creation. Now, there's one final argument that I have heard, and it used to drive me crazy, that cites this passage and alludes to 1 Timothy regarding man's superiority over woman. The argument goes something like this, perhaps you've heard this. Paul does say that it was woman, if you recall, woman who was deceived and not man. That's the end of Paul's works. <laughs> Therefore, though, the argument then continues because women are more prone to deception, as if that's what Paul was saying, and because she was the one who was deceived, she is inferior to man. Not sure if I've heard this. Not sure if you've heard this. I warned you this is going to be a teaching highly, you know, airing on the teaching side today. Now, I want to be careful with what Paul is saying in First Timothy. It's just not the text we have in front of us today and it requires an exploration at a later time. But I will say this, for whatever Paul is positively affirming and saying and arguing there, I seriously doubt that he's suggesting what I believe would be a natural consequence and conclusion to this argument. And that is this. Eve was deceived. Yes, that was her downfall. And to be deceived suggests at least a less than active disobeying of God's command. To be deceived, there's some kind of passivity there. It's not full action active in. It's to be deceived. Do you realize what happened with Adam? Adam went full in, intentionally, actively, completely, knowing what the consequences would be, rebelled against God's good word and command. Actively. But if Eve was deceived into disobedience, and Adam blatantly, openly, actively, intentionally, rebels against God's clear command. (laughs) Certainly not Paul, as a rabbinical lawyer, would say the deception was worse. Because the Old Testament law is very clear about unintentionally breaking God's commands. And it's a much lesser consequence to break one of God's commands in an unintentional manner. But to go in actively <laughs> rebelling in the face of God is much worse. Paul would not agree with that argument. So therefore, if you're looking for a defense of the superiority of man over woman based on either brute strength, the order or sequence of creation, the source of the material used to create it, or the category or type of sin committed. (laughs) We're not going to find it in Genesis 1, 2, or 3. However, we can say something positively about the distinction of male and female, to which Paul alludes in 1 Corinthians 11 when he's drawing on this passage and giving instructions to the church that when women prophesy in the church, they're to have their head covered. Now, when I read that, <laughs> to me, that always looked like subjugating women <laughs> under as inferior to men. That is not what Paul is doing. What Paul is doing is actually celebrating the distinction between male and female. And in that cultural context, in the, in the wider culture When men and women were together, a woman was to have her head covered in the presence of a man. A man was to have his head uncovered in the presence of a woman. That was a cultural norm and standard. And so Paul is drawing on the cultural context and saying, I want to still see the distinction of male and female in the church so that when a woman stands up and prophesies and speaks God's word to his people, everyone knows This is coming from a female (laughs) because as created in God's image, again, stay with me, we're still (laughs) pre-fall, we're still in the creational order, but pre-fall, Paul is drawing on the pre-fall creational context and saying there is something that needs to be seen and heard. It is important for the body of Christ that those male and female distinctions remain in place and are visible and are expressed because God is creating created humanity, male and female, and both are necessary to reflect his image. Now, I'm not saying anything about the authority in the church. Don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> I'm only wanting to address some ways that I think have been misused in the church to defend the roles of men and women in the church. Paul is clear in his instructions and again that's a that's a sermon for another day. but here it's important to see in Genesis 1 and 2 the beauty that God was excited to create male, and female. It is a critique against our current culture to celebrate the unique distinctions of male and female. Our culture, in a lot of ways, at its worst, wants to obliterate the difference between male and female. And the Bible celebrates it. Because God says, I've created humanity in my image. Male and female is necessary to fully reflect who I am. It is a very much an in your face critique against our current culture. And I'll say just a little bit more about that next week. Let me just close by saying this. I'm pretty sure I'm on solid footing here as I've reviewed the other narratives that I've had access to. But In no other of the competing cosmological or creation narratives from the ancient Near East is there this much space given in a sacred text writing about the creation of man and especially woman, male and female. It's not even close how much the writer in Genesis goes out of his way to take the time to describe the unique effort and intention that Yahweh took in making woman. For all the other texts, woman was at best an afterthought and unimportant to the storyline and at worst considered the primary agents of disorder and chaos and ugliness of all that is in this world. But that's not how Genesis presents it. God's people, Israel, have seen and heard those stories in their past. And as they enter the promised land, They're given this text to remind them, you need each other. (laughs) You can't do this alone. And in fact, there are ways that being male needs female. And female needs male. There are distinctions that the Bible celebrates, finds beautiful and necessary to reflect who he is, a good God. And yet, at the end of the day, just reminding us that we're still, we're now (laughs) post-fall. These relationships are broken, aren't they? (laughs) They're broken. And whether you're in a situation longing, desiring to be in a close, intimate relationship with another human being, someone of the opposite uh, opposite sex, Whether you're in a marriage that's just going through a hard, tough time right now. Whether you're experiencing brokenness in relationships at work, your roommate in the church. (laughs) Let me remind you, it's not the way things were supposed to be. And God is doing something about it even now. And he has sent his son to reconcile all things to himself, including the broken relationships among us. It doesn't happen overnight, but it is important in God's community, covenant community to see that reconciliation and peace and shalom and relationships happen. And this is why God gives us this meal, the meal we're about to take. It is a reminder as we come to this table that all of us as Jesus' followers, male and female, in our distinctive gender characteristics, they are to be celebrated and together we eat from the same loaf because we are one unified body. I would encourage you as we do start, begin to come to the table. You know, we are warned not to come to the table in an unworthy manner. (laughs) And at least one of the things that Paul talks about very specifically is broken and fractured relationships in the church. If there's someone here this morning that you have not yet been reconciled with and there are lingering, unreconciled differences, not necessary to clear everything up right now, <laughs> but I would encourage just a simple gesture, maybe just an eye contact, <laughs> if not a hand on a shoulder, just to say, as a way of saying, because Jesus is first committed to me, because Jesus is first committed to you, because Jesus is committed to this body, I will commit to Jesus and I will commit to you. <laughs> that we will pursue peace among us. Because at the end of the day, we were not built to be alone. We were built for relationship in the beauty and diversity of all the personalities, male and female, all those distinctions, all that beauty. It is a reflection of our triune God, unity in diversity. It's a beautiful thing that God has created. He will eventually make it right once again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would grant us first a recognition and a renewed sense of how our relationship with you has been broken but you have stepped in and taken the first move towards us to reconcile that relationship we recognize that our marriage our marriages are not always reflective our roommate situations our work situations our friendships are not always reflective of the wonder and beauty of what it means to be created in your image, both male and female, pursuing each other in peace and reconciliation. But Father, we know that you are absolutely committed. In fact, Jesus, on that night when you, before you were arrested in the garden, you prayed that your people might know what we were originally intended and created for. And that is unity and relationship with others because it takes <laughs> it takes a variety of distinction and beauty and roles responsibilities to completely and fully image the god who created us so help us now even as we come to this table as we eat this bread and drink the cup, that we would be reminded that you are for us together. Unity in diversity. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.